Gresham College presents Christianity and Literature, The Christian Reticence of W. H. Auden, by the Right Reverend Lord Harrys of Pentregarth, Gresham Professor of Divinity. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and a very happy new year. Hope it's got off to a good start. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, Silence the pianos and with a muffled drum bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let the aeroplane circle moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. Put crepe bows round the necks of the public doves, let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest. My noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. You recognize it? Yes, lots of nods. Uh, it, is, it was, of course, uh, a major aspect of the film uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And it suddenly put the name of W.H. Auden in public circulation again. And this time, probably to a wider circle uh, than uh, there had ever been before. Auden was born in 1907 and died in 1973. He published his first book of poetry in 1930 when he was failed as a prodigy and he became the poetic voice of those who came to maturity in the troubled 1930s. Although some believe, wrongly in my view, that his later poetry lost some of its earlier power, he never entirely lost his position as the outstanding poet of the post-T.S. Eliot generation. During the 1930s, <coughs> Auden, like those associated with him, such as Stephen Spender, Louis McNeese, and Cecil Day-Lewis, were thought of as politically committed and writing from the standpoint of the political left. As Auden's obituary in the Times put it, to anyone who was young in the 1930s and troubled by the state of the world, Auden's death will mean that something of their past has died too. For thousands of those who would now be called the involved felt that Auden spoke up for them. In 1940, Auden returned to the Christian faith, which had left him when he was 15, and thereafter his poetry took a different turn. Critics are divided on the relative merits of his earlier and later poetry. What is more shocking is that so many have totally ignored or underplayed the fact that everything he wrote after 1940 is undergirded and suffused by his newfound Christian faith. That impression, I'm glad to say, has now been corrected, at least by one scholar, through the outstanding work of dispassionate learning, Auden and Christianity, a book by uh, an American scholar, Arthur Kirsch. Now, I'm not speaking in this lecture as a literary critic, and will not, therefore, be trying to assess Auden's poetic stature and legacy. I will be looking at his understanding of religion as expressed both in his poetry and his prose, because I think this has some interesting, important insights for any thoughtful, cultivated person exploring the nature of religious faith today. 
However, I will just make two points very briefly in relation to his poetic gifts and where he stands in the development of 20th century literature. First, he was the most prodigiously talented of all 20th century poets. He possessed, as one scholar has said, a technical virtuosity bordering on wizardry. And this was combined with an amazingly wide, often esoteric culture. And secondly, Auden recognized that the generation before his own, Stravinsky in music, Picasso in art, Joyce in the novel, and T.S. Eliot in poet, were the ones who had made the decisive break with traditional norms. And as he put it rather modestly, he himself was simply a colonizer of that tradition. The modernism of the previous generation had radically shaken things up. Without going back on what had happened then, Auden saw himself fundamentally as crafting poetry in the most disciplined way possible. And he did this in an amazing variety of forms. As the poet James Fenton has put it, he worked through every poetic form he could find. He invented, as far as English is concerned, a discursive style that could accommodate the language of prose and the concern of science. Auden was brought up in a devout Anglo-Catholic home by parents who did, in fact, practice what they preached. But, like many other adolescents, Auden didn't so much uh, rebel against religion as lose interest in it at the age of 15 in favor of going his own way to, as he put it, enjoy the pleasures of the world and the flesh. And then he was caught up in the fun of living and loving the hectic social life of Oxford, the heady insights of Marx and Freud, and the excitement of being at the center of the literary avant-garde of his generation. So what made Auden return to the Christian faith? There are a number of factors, I think, which all come together. First, a gradual recognition during the 1930s that the great problems being faced by the world were not going to be solved by political solutions alone. He'd never been a fully paid up member of the Communist Party, always aware that there are other factors in addition to politics that need to be taken into account. And the crisis of the 1930s sharpened his awareness of the limitations of political solutions. And the rise of fascism in so civilized a country as Germany uh, shocked him deeply and opposed the question to him about the grounds on which he himself would oppose fascism. And so in his poem, September the 1st, 1939, a poem that once again became famous when it was read and reprinted many times after 9-11, he wrote these words. I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid, as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. So in addition to that awareness of the limitation of politics, it was when he was teaching in an English public school, he had a personal experience that affected him deeply. One balmy evening in June 1933, he was sitting outside with some colleagues. 
They hadn't been drinking, he said, and they weren't sexually attracted to one another, and they were talking quite casually about everyday matters, when, as he wrote, I felt myself invaded by a power which, though I consented to it, was irresistible and certainly not mine. For the first time in my life, I knew exactly, because thanks to the power I was doing it, what it means to love one's neighbor as oneself. My personal feelings towards them were unchanged. They were still colleagues, not intimate friends. But I felt their existence as themselves to be of infinite value and rejoiced in it. Then, in addition to that very powerful personal experience, it was when he was negotiating with the Oxford University Press over a book of light verse, he met someone called Charles Williams, who struck him as unqualifiedly good. As he ordered himself put it, he was a saint of, man, of a man. It was nothing he particularly did or said, and we never discussed religion, one just felt ten times a better person in his presence. And then to that we might add a fourth point. There was a shock when he uh, felt when he was in Rome, in Spain, supporting the Republican cause, uh, to find that all the churches had been closed by the Republicans. And although he himself had been outside the Christian church for a number of years by then, it not only surprised him, uh, but it surprised him at how shaken he felt about this. And then finally, when he was in New York, where German films were still being shown before the Americans came into the war, he was even more shaken to find ordinary members of the German community in New York standing up and shouting in the film, kill the Poles, kill the Poles. Now, I don't think there is in anything very unusual, interesting though these reasons are, about these kind of considerations which brought Auden back to the Christian faith in which he'd been nurtured as a child. What's more startling and decisive for his whole understanding of the nature of faith was what happened not long afterwards. When Auden arrived in America, he fell in love with an 18-year-old student, Chester Kalman. Before that, he'd always doubted if he'd ever find true love, and indeed if anybody could ever love him. All went wonderfully well for two years, and then he discovered that Chester Kalman was being unfaithful to him. Auden had the highest ideals of marriage and had seen his relationship to Chester Kalman as a true marriage involving a total lifelong faithfulness. But as he came very bitterly to see, Kalman was temperamentally promiscuous and wasn't prepared to have Auden on those terms. Auden himself, despite other physical affairs, continued to love Chester Coleman for the rest of his life and in a profound sense to remain deeply faithful to him. They lived together and they collaborated on work together. But this fundamental unhappiness, this anguish at the heart of his life shaped his whole understanding of faith. In short, he came to believe through great pain and grief that his vocation was to love even if he wasn't loved in the same way in return, and to be a poet. And when Auden wrote about his return to faith, he said this, and then providentially, for the occupational disease of poets is frivolity, I was forced to know in person what it is like to feel oneself the prey of demonic powers in both the Greek and the Christian sense, stripped of all self-control and self-respect, and behaving like a ham actor in a Strindberg play. 
This is a strong statement, and we can only guess at the anguish and rage that lies behind it. But it had the effect of making down-to-earth love of neighbor fundamental to Auden's understanding of religion, beginning with love for his immediate unfaithful neighbor, Chester Cullman, who continued to cause him so much pain and grief. Now, Edward Mendelssohn, whose whole life's work has been collecting Auden's voluminous writings and himself writing about them, has argued that love of neighbor was not only the overriding element in Auden's religion, but its sole element, and that he rejected the transcendent vertical dimension. I think Mendelssohn is quite wrong about this. It's always difficult to get the right balance between love of God and love of neighbor, and there's no doubt that for Auden, love of God not only had to be expressed in love of neighbor, but was the final touchdown, touchstone as to whether your love of God was real. It was in the end what mattered, the only serious thing to life. But he did not think that the Christian faith amounted only to this. Undergirding it for him, first of all, was a deep sense of gratitude to God for existence. In a poem called Precious Five, celebrating the five senses, he wrote, I could, which you cannot, find reasons fast enough to face the sky and roar in anger and despair at what is going on, demanding that it name whoever is to blame. The sky would only wait till all my breath was gone and then reiterate, as if I wasn't there, that singular command I do not understand. Bless what there is for being. Which has to be obeyed, for what else am I made for, agreeing or disagreeing? Bless what there is for being. Auden, perhaps rather luckily, had a naturally happy temperament, as he put it, even when one is hurt and has to bellow, still one is fundamentally happy to be able to. But he was hurt. Chester Coleman treated him like a doormat. He often faced the sky and roared in anger and despair when people were not looking at him. Stephen Spender records sitting at a table with Auden and Chester Coleman when Chester got up and crossed the street to make advances to a young man. Auden went on talking, but Spender saw that there were tears running down Auden's cheeks. However, Auden knew that in the end there was no alternative but to bless what there is for being. And as he wrote elsewhere, let your last thinks be all be thanks. In facing up to the predicament of humanity and the need to love one another, he knew that he himself, like every other human being, was part of the problem. And therefore, that first of all, he had to face himself without self-deception or illusion. As he wrote in another short poem, Oh, look, look in the mirror. Oh, look in your distress. Life remains a blessing, although you cannot bless. Oh, stand, stand at the window as the tears scald and start. You must love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. Now, this idea of life as a blessing had an extraordinary richness for Auden because of the amazing width of his natural interests. His father was a doctor who became professor of public health in Birmingham, 
and who was a keen amateur archaeologist. Auden's great love as a child were the rocks and landscapes of Yorkshire, with its disused lead mines, and indeed one of his brothers became a professional geologist. Auden himself originally went up to Oxford to read science with a view to becoming a mining engineer, and only at Oxford switched to English. There was almost nothing in life that did not genuinely arouse his curiosity and interest. And so he wrote in one of his poems, let us hymn the small but journal wonders of nature and of households. One of his best known uh, love poems is called In Praise of Limestone, which does just that, relating the landscape of Yorkshire to the different features of the human condition and ending up with the lines, when I try to imagine a faultless love or the life to come, what I hear is the murmur of underground streams, what I see is a limestone landscape. Now many poets, of course, in many different ways have celebrated nature. Fewer have celebrated the wonder of households, but that's just what Auden did most obviously in his collection called Thanksgiving for a Habitat, in which he celebrates all the different rooms in a house. Now the extraordinary range of things in which Auden took a delight does, I think, bring out an interesting and important aspect of his understanding of the Christian faith, which stands in very sharp contrast to another strand represented, for example, by T.S. Eliot. Auden was, in both a denigratory and a celebratory sense, a very worldly person. He drank a lot, he smoked heavily, he loved parties, he even gave a positive value to gossip. Listen to this, what he writes about gossip. How often I have walked or worked off ill feeling against friends by telling some rather malicious stories about them, and as a result met them, met them again with a feeling quite gone. When one reads in the papers of some unfortunate man who's gone for his wife with a razor, one can be pretty certain that he wasn't a great gossip. Gossip is creative. All art is based on gossip. Gossip is the art form of the man and woman in the street, and the proper subject for gossip, as for all art, is the behavior of mankind. Now, it's not surprising, is it, that with this attitude to the world about him, people found it very difficult to think of him as either uh, deeply serious or deeply religious. But he was. Indeed, he argued, rightly in my view, that those who come across as serious are in fact very often frivolous. And it is absolutely wonderful to find that he regarded the somber and sometimes pretentious T.S. Eliot as in the end frivolous. Apparent frivolity, apparent lightheartedness and sheer enjoyment often cover up a genuine seriousness about life. Philip Larkin wrote about a later collection of Auden's poetry. In some way, Auden, never a pompous poet, has now become an unserious one. And in the light of that, it is not surprising that Larkin included virtually none of Auden's later poetry in his 20th century book of English verse. But I like to suggest that Larkin could not have been more wrong. As Auden wrote, a frivolity which precisely because it is aware of what is serious, refuses to take seriously that which is not serious, can be profound. So, in a world of self-consciously serious people, Auden 
suggested that it is the smoking room story alone, which ironically enough stands for, quotes, our hunger for eternal life. Now, as I suggested, the contrast with T.S. Eliot is an illuminating one. Eliot, in his poetry, is an advocate of the via negativa. This suggests that the way to God is through negation of all that we think we know about him, through letting go of all we hold on to for security, through loss and darkness. Comes across well in the, the lines from Eliot's poem, The Four Quartets, which are themselves virtually a quotation from St. John of the Cross, who is particularly associated with this way and the phrase, the dark night of, so of the soul. Eliot wrote, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. In short, to use words he uses a few lines later, we have to go, by, go to God by the way of ignorance and dispossession. Now, Auden, being learned as well as a serious believer, would, of course, not have denied any of this. And he knew very well that our human words and thoughts about God are, in one inescapable sense, human projections. When it comes to God, we always make an image of what we most want or most fear. And he used to ram this truth home to himself and others by talking about Miss God in remarks like, Miss God has decided to keep me celibate this summer. Now that said, what is fundamental and characteristic about him is that he deeply appreciated and delighted in the world about him in its every aspect. Like the Roman writer Terence, he would have said, homo sum, humani nil me alienum puto, nothing human is alien to me. So although Auden celebrated nature, he was essentially a city dweller, and it was city life that he rejoiced in, both poetically and religiously, even to the smallest detail of a dinner party. Tonight at 7.30, after describing many of the details of the ideal dinner party, ends with these words. I see a table at which the youngest and oldest present keep the eye grateful for what nature's bounty and grace of spirit can create. For the ear's content, one raconteur, one Gnostic with amazing shop, both in a talkative mood but knowing when to stop, and one wide-traveled worldling to interject now and then a sardonic comment, men and women who enjoy the cloop of corks, appreciate depatical fare, yet can see in swallowing a sign act of reverence, in speech a work of representing the true Olamic silence. Now, other Christian poets, notably Thomas Traherne, have celebrated the Via Positiva, but none, I think, have done it in such a bold and inclusive and, well, surely worldly way as W.H. Auden. Now, although the foundation of Auden's religion is rooted in his sense that the givenness of life, despite everything, is a blessing, 
There is no doubt, as Edward Mendelssohn emphasizes, that love of neighbor was for him the essential touchstone for the reality of that religion. Now, duty is not a word that is in fashion today, but it was a key word for Auden, and he wasn't embarrassed to quote the old Anglican catechism that the Christian vocation is, quotes, to do my duty in that state of life unto which it shall please God to call me. He believed that the state of life to which he'd been called was that of a poet, and his duty was to work on his talents to the best of his ability. He saw himself as a craftsman, in some way like a carpenter, and he had no time for sloppy ideas of inspiration. And all his work in such a variety of styles and forms is indeed meticulously crafted. And although he had a heavily lined face, some of you will have seen those incredible photos of Auden's face, and a very, very crumpled appearance, and lived in great squalor, he was fanatical about timekeeping and could get extremely irritated if meals were not served at the time expected. And in a poem written for a friend's marriage, he recommends not only strong nerves, but, quotes, an accurate wristwatch, too, can be a great help. In short, he unashamedly championed the bourgeois virtues. And acknowledging that bourgeois society is in a mess, he does not think that Dostoevsky will help us to get out of it, as he wrote, I'd rather take the bourgeois hero Sir Walter Scott, who worked himself to death to pay his creditors, than Alyosha or any other of Dostoevsky's seedy enthusiasts. Paying your debts, keeping promises, turning up on time, observing the courtesies, improving your poetry. This was the more surprising side of a man who was best known for his louche lifestyle, warm generosity, and many good friends, but which was all part of how he saw his duty to love God and love his neighbor. So duty is a key word. He kept going with Chester Kalman because he continued to love him, because he'd seen their relationship as a marriage, and because happiness for him was not in the end about pain and pleasure, as he put it. Happiness consists in a loving and trusting relationship to God. Accordingly, we are to take one thing and one thing only seriously, our eternal duty to be happy, and that all considerations of pleasure and pain are subordinate. Thou shalt love God and thy neighbor, and thou shalt be happy, mean the same thing. Now, one of the sayings of Auden that has become quite well known is this. There is no such thing as a Christian politics or a Christian art or a Christian science any more than there is a Christian diet. There is only politics or art or science which are natural activities concerned with the natural and historical man. Now, this sentence occurred as part of a lecture at Yale Divinity School which was later published in the British journal Theology. And it's a serious, theologically wide-ranging, somewhat conservative piece in response to a request to speak about the vocation of a Christian layman and set within the framework of rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things of God to God. Now, he understands the fall of humanity eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and is as, as a desire for autonomy. It is, he put it, a desire to become one's own source of value to become as God while still remaining a man. 
And this results in a condition of guilt and anxiety from which we try to escape by our own efforts through natural religion. Such efforts, he said, were bound to be self-frustrated since they were rooted in a self-contradictory desire to find an absolute which at the same time should be controllable by man. But with the coming of a revealed knowledge of God in Christ, this natural religion is no longer needed if it ever was. Now the job of the church, in particular the priest, he said, is to transmit this unchanging truth, this revealed truth. And for this task, the particular human gifts of the priest are not, strictly speaking, relevant. The lay person, on the other hand, still participates in the wider world, perhaps mostly mixing with non-Christians, and in that world, the things of Caesar have to be rendered to Caesar. This includes art as well as politics and science. They belong to the historical and natural realm, and the poet has to use such gifts as he has in that realm without claiming the special revelation of God any more than a government can. Now, this is not the place or the time to examine in detail what I regard as an over-sharp distinction uh, that over Auden makes uh, at that point. But I will point out that, in fact, there is, of course, such a thing as Christian art. Uh, in the sense that in Western culture, for example, until recently, much, if not most, art was inspired by Christian themes and images. The Christian faith has been an integral part of our culture, and until the Enlightenment, its beliefs seeped into and saturated music, poetry, and the visual arts. Of course, it is right that a poet who had a Christian faith like Auden should not and would not claim his poetic gifts and craft were more directly inspired or more from God than, say, the communist brecht. They both had to work with the talents they'd been given according to the norms of their literary crafts. In that sense, the arts are indeed part of a realm that belonged to Caesar. But Auden not only felt accountable to God for the way he used his talents, but his face shaped how he viewed the world and how he celebrated it. And sometimes, though not always, he used Christian imagery in this task. And in that sense, I think there is a Christian art, and in that sense also, I think, uh, that we can call a great deal of Auden's poetry Christian poetry. Now, it's not surprising that given people's stereotype about what does and does not count as religious, uh, that people should have difficulty thinking of Auden as a religious man and have missed the all-pervading dimension of his poetry, the religious dimension of his poetry. This hiddenness, he made something of a creed. One of his poems is called the truest poetry is the most feigning, which is a quotation from As You Like It. It celebrates the way that genuine poetry is bound to have a clever, artful, contrived aspect, uh, aspect to it, and it ends up with these words. What but tall tales, the luck of verbal playing, can trick his lying nature into saying that love or truth in any serious sense, like orthodoxy, is a reticence. That phrase, truth in any serious sense, like orthodoxy, is a reticence, was a favorite for Auden. Now, there were a number of reasons for that reticence. One, of course, is the traditional Englishman's reluctance to bring religion uh, into polite conversation. Uh, and this reluctance is particularly marked when it comes to what might come across as public display, as in politics, but also in the arts. 
Most recently, that attitude was shown by Tony Blair, who said he didn't talk about his religion when he was prime minister for fear, as he put it, of coming across as a nutter. Now, given the suspicion of religion in the kind of intellectual circles that Auden moved, this motive would indeed have been quite strong. So when he wrote to T.S. Eliot and said that he now shared T.S. Eliot's religious beliefs, he urged him not to tell anyone. And once, when someone came into Auden's room and found him praying, he was, in fact, extremely irritated. And then there was the reason already suggested that true seriousness is so serious that it often disguises itself with surface humor or lightheartedness. And this was certainly so in the case of Auden, for people sometimes couldn't make out whether he was being serious or not. He often was, but people didn't grasp it. And then perhaps most important of all, when it comes to some of the big things in life, especially religious truth, words can only hint at what is conveyed, not tie it up in a neat parcel. Quite simply, neat parcels of religion totally fail to convey the ultimate mystery of God, a mystery which is at the heart of the Christian faith. As that great bastion of orthodoxy, uh, with both an, a small and a, a, lot, a large and a small O, John of Damascus, put it in the eighth century, what God is in himself is totally incomprehensible and unknowable. So all the words we use to convey this mystery will, as it were, be in, in inverted commas, will be metaphor or analogy. Now another poet, Emily Dixon, got it well in the 19th century when she wrote, Tell the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. So, as Auden ends his poem, the truest poetry in the most feigning, to repeat it again, what but tall tales the luck of verbal playing can trick his lying nature into saying that love or truth in any serious sense, like orthodoxy, is a reticence. Now, in those lines, there are several other characteristic features of Auden's approach. Our nature is a lying nature. He had no illusions about himself or others. And what tricks this lying nature into revealing the truth is what he calls the luck of verbal play, a very modest way indeed of talking about his massive poetic gifts. Now the title of this series of lectures, as we know, is Literature in a Time of Unbelief. The 1930s, when Auden was the leading young literary figure, was a time of unbelief as marked as our own. It's true that the crisis of those times, followed by World War II, made religious faith a more serious option for many, as it had for Auden. Nevertheless, the zeitgeist in literary circles in his time as ours is not on the whole sympathetic. So, as Emily Dickinson put it, tell it slant is often the only way in which an initial misunderstanding and resistance can be circumvented. But in Auden's case, this aspect was reinforced by the fact that in any case he understood the Christian faith as requiring us to celebrate this world in all its aspects, even with all its quirkiness. Now, one of the issues we all have to think about, and which isn't always easy to get right from a religious point of view, is the relationship between the pleasure and pain of life. If some religious people have given the impression of letting the balance fall on the pain side, Auden is the opposite. Although he knew real personal anguish, I'm tempted to say because he knew personal anguish, he wasn't prepared to offer any easy apologia for suffering. His poem, Epistle to a Godson, is precisely what its title suggests, advice from Auden to one of his godsons. 
And in it, he asks what nourishment he as a godfather could offer his godson for the Christian way of life. And he wrote, nothing obscene or unpleasant, only the unscarred, overfed, enjoy Calvary as a verbal event, nor satiric, no scorn will shame the adversary, nor shoddily made. To give a stunning display of consinity and elegance is the least we can do, and its dominant mood should be that of a carnival. Let us hymn the small but journal wonders of nature and of household, and then finish on a serio-comic note with legends of ultimate eucatastrophe, regeneration beyond the waters. Now, if you didn't take all that in or understand, it's not surprising. He's minted several new words there. For instance, you know, what does, does the word eucatastrophe mean? Well, we know what catastrophe means, an overturning, bringing disaster. Well, the Greek word eu means good or well. Therefore, what is, Auden is trying to suggest is an ultimate overturning of things, uh, bringing a good outcome, a good state of outcome. This is the ultimate outcome of the universe in theological parlance, the eschaton, regeneration beyond the waters. Uh, but even here it is put forward, as Eden put it, it, with a serio-comic note with legends. So for him in the end, all will be well, and with this hope and we are mind to do our job as well as we can. To give a stunning display of consinity in elegance is the least we can do. Consinity means skillfully put together with the mood of carnival, and as discussed before, a hymn to the small but journal wonders of nature and of households. Now, it shouldn't, of course, be thought, because of that reference to Calvary as a verbal event, uh, that, uh, uh, that Calvary meant nothing to Auden. It, it certainly did. He took this and its implication for our understanding of human nature with the utmost seriousness. And at one point, he engages in a traditional Good Friday meditation for himself and wonders what he himself would have been doing on that first Good Friday. And he decides that at best he'd be an ancient philosopher walking by and remarking to a companion how disgusting the crucifixions were. Why couldn't the authorities put people to death more humanely before continuing to engage in their fascinating discussion of truth, beauty, and goodness? Now, theologically, Auden was well-read, uh, thoughtful, and theologically uh, conservative. Um, and I could say something about that, but I think I'll skip that for a moment and just come on to the final little thing I want to say. Because although uh, Auden stressed the reality of the responsibility of the individual and the importance of personal choice and personal uh, responsibility, what is very interesting about him is that he thought what he called the city uh, as no less important. The, all, our life together, organized life in the city was for him one of the fundamental constituents of human living. And this comes out in what is perhaps the most profoundly Christian set of poems he wrote called Horae Canonicae, seven poems based on the seven monastic hours. But what they're concerned about is our life together as human beings our life in the urban jungle. So from one point of view, the poem is about an individual getting up and going about his day, but at the same time, it is about the city in which Jesus is going to get killed in order to redeem the world. Prime, 
begins with a wonderful description of what it is to wake up in the morning. Uh, and then it seems to include the whole world waking up to something sinister in the lying self-made city. And the hours, the monastic hours, continue with the same mixture of the personal and the universal, with it all somehow rooted in a terrible event elsewhere. For without a cement of blood, it must be human, it must be innocent, no secular wall will safely stand, as he put it. The city is our central organized life together, but what we hope for is something much more relaxed and carefree. And I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three, that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, join in the dance as it moves in perico races, turns about the abiding tree. Perico races is a technical term in theology, referring to the way the different persons of the Holy Trinity dwell in one another. But here it seems to suggest that in the dance of humanity around the abiding tree, there is a mutual indwelling of the divine and human, a dance of the divine and human together. And this is a verse which sums up so much of Auden as a Christian and a poet. For him, life is essentially life together, life with one another, social life. And this took its most essential form at once sacramental and enjoyable in the meals we share with one another. But it is noticeable in that final verse that I have read to you, that the meal here is a picnic, not a dinner party, an image that conveys the idea of the relaxed and carefree, conviviality in the fresh air that brings together both the city and the country. But there's nothing sentimental or escapist in Auden's view on how this wonderful end state is achieved. It depends on what happened between noon and three, as he put it in the poem. It is this breaking down of the barriers of our pride before the cross that brings us before others, as he put it, with nothing to hide and leads us to join with others in the dance of humanity. But this dance is at the same time the dance of God in humanity, for the perichoesis of the Blessed Trinity comes through Christ and the Holy Spirit to be an indwelling of God in us. God and humanity are one in that dance, a dance which turns about the tree, at once the tree of life, and the cross as the definitive statement of divine love. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.